Let us pray together. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Father, we pray that today His Gospel would go forth, it would go forth with power, that we might know His Gospel as the power of God for salvation to all who believe. May we believe His Gospel today. May we trust in Him. May we repent of our sin. May we turn more fully and faithfully to You and walk in Your Spirit. This we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We are coming up on that time of year when in the church calendar we commemorate the weekend that changed the world. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, uh, which we are, uh, which means we're entering into what's known as the Passion Week or Holy Week as it's sometimes called when we remember Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey coming as a king, yes, but coming in humility uh, as the children acclaim Him and praise Him. Uh, but really, Palm Sunday points us ahead to the events to come, events we're going to commemorate uh, in the uh, days to come later this week. Uh, Monday, Thursday where Jesus in the upper room shares a meal with His disciples, transforming the Passover into the Lord's Supper. Uh, at that dinner, He washed His disciples' feet, and Judas left early, going out into the night to betray Jesus. Good Friday, uh, when Jesus is tried and then crucified, and darkness covers the land as the Son of God dies, as He breathes out His last, and the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. And then Holy Saturday, uh, when the body of Jesus rested in the tomb and His soul was in the underworld pro proclaiming His victory, even taunting Satan and his demons. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, when He comes forth from the grave, when He rises bodily, making the tomb into the womb of His new creation. And he bursts forth from the tomb and goes out to appear to his disciples and commissions them to take this good news of the risen and reigning Christ into all the world. That's the story. That's the Christian gospel. That's the story that the events uh, that we're going to retell uh, in, in the uh, church calendar as we celebrate and observe these events in the days to come. You could say, of course, that every Sunday is an Easter Sunday for the Christian, and that's true. But it's especially in this time of year that we remember and commemorate these things. Now, as you look at the story in the Gospels, there are a lot of players in this story, a lot of moving pieces. And all of these different players have key roles in, uh, in the unfolding drama. Uh, you've got Judas... You've got the Jewish high priest. They certainly play a role. You've got, you've got Pilate and the Roman soldiers. They have a role to play. You've got the disciples and the crowds who have uh, parts in the story. If we ask the question, why and how did Jesus end up on a cross, we can identify very clearly from the Gospel accounts a chain of responsibility that moves from Judas to the priests, from the priests to Pilate, and from Pilate to the soldiers. And we can even identify from the story the sins that motivated them. Judas was driven by greed, uh, the priest by envy, Pilate by fear. And yet none of that ultimately accounts for what happens. None of that ultimately accounts for his death. Oh, certainly Jesus' death was brought about by various human sins. But Jesus did not die as a martyr. 
Jesus did not die as a helpless victim. His life was not taken from Him. Rather, He went to the cross voluntarily, even deliberately and purposefully. His blood was shed, not spilled, as the saying goes. His death was purposeful, not accidental. It was triumphant, not tragic. Yes, He will pour out His life. He will give Himself away on the cross. And all of this is to fulfill the wise and loving redemptive design of the Father who sent Him. And so Octavius Winslow sums it up this way. He asks the question, who delivered Jesus to die? He says, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but His Father for love. Oh yes, on a human level, and a historical level, we can say Judas gave him up to the priests who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers who gave him up to death. But that's not the whole story. At the divine level, the Father gives Him up for us and the Son gives Himself up to the Father for us. And so whenever we talk about what caused the cross, yes, we can say there were historical reasons for it and those are important. Those reasons found in human sin. The sins of the Jews and of the Romans. And so really we could say the sins of the whole human race. We can even extend that to our own sins. And we can say, it's my sin that put Him on the cross. I did it. I crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. As Martin Luther put it, he said, our sins were His nails. He said, we carry about in our pockets the very nails that put Him on the cross. But that is not a complete account. That is not a complete account of the the cause of the cross. We have to reckon with God's design, with God's purpose. Yes, God was working through these human actors, but it's God who stands behind it all. The Father did not spare His Son so that sinners might be spared. The Son gave His life as a ransom for many to release us from bondage. And so, yes, we certainly attribute the death of Jesus to human weakness and wickedness. But deeper than that, we must attribute it to the saving love of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together as one to redeem a people from sin and death and Satan. Man's sin is in front of the cross, but God's love is behind it. Now, I think we can get a real sense of God's design if you look at the role played by a couple of smaller figures in the story. Last week, we looked at one of these smaller figures. We looked at Barabbas. Barabbas, whose name means son of the father. And we saw that Barabbas is really a parable for every one of us. Barabbas is guilty, but he gets released. He's accused of crimes and he is sentenced to death, but he gets released. He gets to walk. Barabbas is a picture, a symbol of every one of us. Barabbas is guilty, but he gets to go free. Jesus, who is innocent, dies in his place. The charges against Barabbas are dropped. And those very charges land on Jesus. Just as the charges against you have been dropped because they landed on Jesus. Barabbas is an outlaw. Jesus is the law incarnate. Barabbas is a lawbreaker. Jesus is the law fulfiller. 
Jesus dies for Barabbas' crimes, the law keeper for the law breaker. It is a story of salvation through substitution. And now that is your story. Barabbas' story is now every Christian's story. But there is another figure whose role seems small, but who also becomes for us a parable. Uh, He's a symbolic figure, and he shows us another dimension of what the cross is designed to accomplish. I'm speaking of Simon the Cyrene. Like Barabbas, he appears to be a bit player in a much larger drama, one you could easily overlook, but really, he plays a crucial role, a representative role. He is a symbolic figure. The cross can never be regarded as less than a substitutionary atonement. But we can't stop with that either, or we have truncated the cross. The cross is bigger than that. A cross that only forgives without also transforming is simply too small. It doesn't meet all of our needs. A cross that saves from hell, but not from sin, is a cross that is too small. See, the cross is not just substitution for the sinner. It's also victory over sin. The cross is not just an event. It's an ethic. It's not only Jesus' manner of death, but it must become our manner of life if we're to be His disciples. See, every Christian is a Barabbas. Yes, that's true. But every Christian is also a Simon. Like Barabbas, we escape the cross because Christ died in our place. And like Simon, we carry the cross because Jesus calls us to take it up and follow Him. Barabbas represents the substitutionary dimension of the cross. Simon represents the participatory dimension of the cross. The cross is not only something Jesus does for us, it's something He does in us. The case of Barabbas shows us the self-giving love of Jesus. The case of Simon shows us the self-denying love that must characterize every disciple of Jesus. Barabbas points us to Jesus in our place, dying for our sins. Simon points us to Jesus in us, enabling us to die to sin. The case of Barabbas shows us that Jesus enters into solidarity with our plight. The case of Simon shows us we have to enter into solidarity with Jesus in His way of life. Simon carries the cross. We learn from the teaching of Jesus we must take up and carry our crosses as well. And Simon, I think, can help us understand what this means. Let's look more closely at Simon, what we learn about Simon here. Uh, It was customary when a man was condemned to death by crucifixion that he would be beaten and flogged and then he would be forced to carry his own cross, the, the cross piece, the beam that would be nailed to the tree to form the cross that the man himself would then be nailed to. Now, in Jesus' case, he certainly would have been forced to carry his cross as well, but apparently he couldn't do it. This is not because Jesus is wimpy, but it's because he had been beaten to a pulp already. This is really emphasized in the Gospel accounts. The suffering that's already been inflicted on Jesus, particularly by Pilate. Pilate tried to beat Jesus so much 
that the Jews would actually pity him and figure, well, okay, he's suffered enough, he's learned his lesson. And so then the Jews would be okay with letting Jesus go free and Pilate wouldn't have to crucify a man he knows is innocent. But even after Pilate has beaten Jesus to a pulp, the Jews still demand his death. And so Jesus must carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place where he will be crucified. But apparently he's not able to do so. And so the Romans compel a certain man to carry his cross, Simon from Cyrene. Now, why was Simon there? We're told that he was coming out of the country and passing by. Uh, Perhaps Simon was just part of the crowd in town for the feast. But a good case can be made that he's there watching what is happening with Jesus because he knows something about Jesus and perhaps even is in some way sympathetic with Jesus. It might even be some kind of show of sympathy towards Jesus on his part uh, that leads the Romans to choose him to be the guy to carry the cross. But even if Simon was not any kind of disciple of Jesus at this point, even if he was just chosen randomly from the crowd to carry the cross, he certainly became a disciple later on. And we know this from the way he is identified here. Uh, He must have become a well-known man in the early church because of the full description we're given of who he is. We're given his full identity, you know, sort of all of his credentials, his papers. Uh, We're told his homeland, uh, his family connections are given here. There's simply no reason for Mark to include all of this information. Mark, whose account uh, of of, of the whole of the gospel is so sparse, uh, so lacking in detail, there's no reason for, for, for Mark to include all of this unless Simon had become a well-known figure to his readers, unless the first hearers of Mark's gospel would have known who this man was. So Mark identifies him for us specifically because I think Mark expects people to, to know who he is. Simon is from Cyrene, which was located in northern Africa. His name is a Hebrew name, uh, which means to hearken or to hear obediently. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for hearing includes obedience because to truly hear is to obey. You haven't really heard unless you also do. Uh, in the Hebrew way of thinking, uh, hearing is hearing obediently. And so that's what Simon's name means. It means to hearken or to obey. Uh, it's a great name for a disciple. Uh, obviously, a disciple is a Simon. Every disciple is a Simon. One who hears the voice of God obediently. We hear and we do. But because he's identified as a Cyrene, which means he's uh, a native North African, This is most likely a man who is a dark-skinned Jewish proselyte, an African who has become a Jew, who has attached himself to the Jewish people. Uh, He's heard the teachings of the Israelite scriptures, and he has sought to follow them, to put them into practice in his life. Further, Mark identifies this man as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, church tradition tells us that these two men, Alexander and Rufus, became missionaries. In fact, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, there are certain men of Cyrene, so certain Cyrenian men, who became missionaries, who began preaching the gospel, and apparently were among the first to preach the gospel to the Greeks in 
Antioch. Uh, so apparently these two men had become well-known missionaries in the early church, and it seems that at least one of these uh, two helped to take the gospel to Rome. Because in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 16, he begins to stack up all of these greetings. Paul begins to say hi uh, and, and, and acknowledge all the people in the Roman Christian community, a place Paul had never visited, but he's got a lot of friends there. And so at the end of his letter to the church there, he begins to acknowledge uh, all of his friends in the Roman church. And in Romans chapter 16, he greets Rufus. He greets Rufus and also his mother, who of course would have been Simon's wife. Now, presumably by the time Paul writes Romans, by this point Simon has passed away. It would have been about 25 years after Simon carried the cross, about 25 years after Jesus is crucified when Paul is writing Romans. So Simon seems to have passed uh, away by then. But Paul greets Simon's wife, and he also greets Rufus, Simon's son. Uh, in fact, Paul says there that Rufus has been chosen in the Lord. That probably means he's been chosen by God for some kind of special service or perhaps even some kind of suffering uh, that he's called to endure as he labors in the gospel. And Paul says of Rufus's mother, so again, remember, this would be Simon's wife, she has been a mother to me. And so she must have been uh, a help to Paul. She must have helped Paul in various ways in his apostolic work. Uh, Paul sees her as family. That's how close they are. So clearly this man, Simon, uh, this man is the head of a prominent early Christian family, the head of a prominent early Christian household. This family became near and dear to the Apostle Paul. So whatever we want to say about why Simon was chosen to carry the cross, he learned his lesson and he became a disciple of Jesus and his family with him. But we have to ask, what does it mean for Simon to carry the cross? What are we supposed to learn from this? What's the significance of this historical detail? What does it add to the story? What does it symbolize? Well, of course, we've seen this with Barabbas. Barabbas shows us we are united to Jesus as our substitute. Simon shows us we are united to Jesus in cross-bearing. That we are called to share in the death and the suffering of Jesus. Think back to Mark chapter 8. We read it this morning. Uh, that passage there where Jesus, in a shocking way, an utterly shocking way, describes not only His own ministry, but also describes discipleship. How does he describe discipleship? He describes messiahship in terms of going to the cross. You know, Jesus talks about his suffering. He's been telling his twelve, the twelve disciples, about how he, as the Son of Man, must suffer many things. How he's going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the elders and priests and be killed. They think he's going to go to Jerusalem and be crowned as king. And instead he says he's going to go there and be rejected and ultimately killed. And then Peter begins to rebuke him for this. Not realizing that in doing so, he's really become Satan's spokesman. He's become a missionary of Satan. An apostle of Satan by trying to derail Jesus from his real mission, his real purpose. He's seeking to derail Jesus from the cross. Of course, Jesus then has to rebuke Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus begins to explain the cross is not just for him, but the cross is also for all who follow him. Jesus explains the cross is not just what defines Messiahship, it also defines discipleship. 
The cross isn't just for Jesus. Each of His disciples will have crosses to bear as well. And so Jesus says, whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. That is, follow Me to the place of crucifixion. Because if you take up your cross, that's what you're doing. You're going to the place where you're going to be put to death. And Jesus continues, He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. See, Simon is a disciple in the most literal sense. He does what Jesus says disciples do. He takes up His cross and follows Jesus. In this way, He's really a model disciple for us. This historical action by Simon symbolizes the life of discipleship. But the question then is, what does it mean? What does it mean for us to take up our crosses. If we're called to be Simons also, if every Christian is a Simon called to take up his cross, what's it mean for us to do that? Obviously, we're not going to have a literal beam of wood put across our backs to carry to Golgotha. What does it mean then? Well, obviously, it's a metaphor for something. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, this is, this is the way this kind of language makes it into the popular parlance, the popular culture. Sometimes we think of our cross to bear as the inconveniences of life. Oh, my water heater is leaking. That's my cross to bear. Or, oh, I've got a difficult boss I have to answer to at work. Uh, that's my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. The trials are not the cross per se. They may expose what our cross is, but they're not identical with it. The cross is not some trial outside of you. It's not some external circumstance. The trial, I'm sorry, the cross is your sin. That's the cross. That's what has to be put to death. It's the sin within. It's our idolatry. It's our anti-God rebellious tendencies and desires. It is our propensity to violate God's law and God's design for human life what Scripture calls our flesh, which is not uh, to be identified, strictly speaking, with the physical aspect of our humanity. The body, after all, is God's good creation. But rather, the flesh is embodied life turned against God. Perverted against God's purposes. The flesh is the human heart and human life organized in rebellion against God. That's what the flesh is so often in Scripture. And so, it is God's design in the cross to slay the flesh. To slay the flesh and to create a new humanity alive to God in the Spirit. It is God's design in the cross to put to death the old, the old humanity, and bring to life a new humanity. To kill the flesh and to make us alive in the Spirit. Oh yeah, the cross aims at forgiveness. But it doesn't stop with that. It doesn't end with that. It can't be reduced to that. Forgiveness is only the beginning. This is actually strategically more ultimate. It's what God is ultimately aiming at. Not just to forgive us, but to make us new. The cross includes forgiveness. It makes us right with God. But more than that, it makes us like 
God. It doesn't only justify us. It makes us just. It doesn't only forgive us. It makes us forgiving. The purpose of the cross is not simply to cover sin, but to destroy sin. And it's so important for us to see this. See, the cross not only changes our status before God, it transforms who we are and how we live. The crucified Christ is not just our Savior from sin. He's also our champion, our victory, who crushes sin in our lives. He not only saves us from sin's penalty, He delivers us from sin's power over us, ultimately even its presence in us. The cross is not just a place of past substitution. It's also a place of daily execution. It's where Jesus died for sinners in the past, yes, but it's also a place and a means through which you put sin to death day by day. See, the cross is not just a relic of the past. It is the power of God's Spirit unleashed in your life to put to death those old ways. Consider some passages that show us this, that show us God's ultimate aim and design in Christ's cross. Think about Titus chapter 2. Paul writes these words. Jesus Christ gave Himself for us. So that's obviously the cross. That's where Jesus gave Himself for us. Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people zealous for good works. Why did Christ die for you on the cross? Here Paul just hops right over forgiveness and goes straight to the ultimate goal. It's not just that we would be forgiven. It's that we'd be purified. The cross purifies you. Not only that, the cross, Paul says, makes us zealous for good deeds. Why did Jesus die on the cross so that you would be zealous to do what is right, to do good? He underwent His passion to make you passionate for what is good and right and true and beautiful. He died to make you zealous for good deeds. So you'd be fired up about doing good and doing what is right. Or consider what Paul, uh, what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. He, that is Christ Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree. So obviously this is the substitutionary aspect of the cross. When He died on the cross, He was dying for our sins. He was bearing our sins as He was nailed to the tree. He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness by His stripes, you were healed. Again, here Peter implies forgiveness, but he doesn't come out and say that. He skips right over forgiveness and jumps straight to the transformative power of the cross in our lives. So that as we bump up against trials and difficulties in life and and we're tempted to sin in all kinds of ways, through anger, through impatience, through greed, envy, whatever it might be, whatever the sin is, Jesus died so that we might die to those sins and live for righteousness. In fact, he even cites Isaiah 53 here, by His stripes you were healed. Here the healing is not a healing from a sickness. Ultimately, that will be included in the resurrection of the body. So that's packaged up in what Jesus did at the cross too. But here the healing is healing from sin. Sin has broken you. You're not the kind of human being you should be. You were made to image God. You're a cracked 
mirror, not reflecting God's image the way that you should. Jesus died on the cross to heal you, to fix what is broken. He died on the cross that you might die to sin and live righteously so that that your humanity might be healed from this disease of sin. See, see, and there's other passages I could point you to. The design of the cross includes our forgiveness, but its deepest and ultimate purpose is to make us like Jesus Himself. So we not only share in His legal status, standing righteous before the Father, but we also share in and fully imitate His righteous character. That's the purpose of the cross. Jesus died to make you holy. Jesus died to make you like Himself. And indeed, throughout the pages of the New Testament, we find Christ's crucifixion is the dynamic that powers the Christian life. When we take up our crosses and follow Jesus, what we're doing is we are experiencing co-crucifixion with Jesus. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. As we take up our crosses, we die to our sins. And so this means the old you, the old self is dead. That's what it means to take up your cross. It means the the old self is dead. You have died to sin. You've died to the world. In fact, there are really three deaths that the New Testament talks about that come through the cross of Jesus. Death to self, death to sin, and death to the world. Let me point you to all three of those. And again, here I'll just use three passages that talk about this. These three deaths. Because this really gets at the heart of what it means to take up our crosses. This is what it means to have died with Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2. And this is death to the self. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I was co-crucified with Christ. It wasn't just Jesus dying for me on the cross. I was dying with Him on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see what Paul is doing here, Galatians 2.20? He is narrating his life experience in terms of the cross and resurrection. He's been crucified with Christ And now Christ lives in him. It's no longer the self that lives. The self has been killed. And now it's Christ who lives in Paul. And for Paul, this is the whole dynamic of the Christian life. Through the Spirit, we are continually dying to the old, crucifying the old, and coming alive to righteousness more and more. See, there in that verse, Paul speaks in the first person. He says, I, I have died with Christ. I was crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live. He's speaking in the first person, but he's not only giving us his own spiritual autobiography, he's really giving us a paradigm for every Christian. This is not just Paul's life story, it's to be your life story as well. You're to plug yourself into that. And so, I can put Paul's words on my own lips. I can say, I, rich, I, rich lust, have died. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer rich who lives, it's now Christ who lives in me. Because rich is dead and now Christ lives. This is to be our life story as well. Like Paul, we're to participate in the self-giving, self-offering love of Jesus. We're to identify with Him in His death to sin and His resurrection life. The self has to be killed. That's what it means to take up your cross. It's to put self to death. 
But it's not a suicide kind of thing. It means a new you is being born through Jesus. A new you is coming to life through Jesus and the Spirit. Death to self is one death we die. Another is death to sin. Romans 6 talks about this. It explains how we have died to sin in Christ's death. And Paul even links this to baptism. He says in Romans 6, and I'm just picking out some verses here and paraphrasing a little bit, but you can read Romans 6 and see that it gets at this. Paul says, we have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we should walk in newness of life. You see that? It's death in Christ and then being resurrected in Christ. He says, we've been united together in the likeness of Christ's death. He says, our old man, so there's the old self, was crucified with Him that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. It's like sin was your master. And sin has been slain at the cross. And so you've been set free from that master. Okay, Just like the, the Israelites were set free from Pharaoh when Pharaoh perished in the Red Sea, sin has been drowned. Sin has been killed at the cross. Through the cross and baptism, sin has died. You no longer answer to that master. When sin calls, you don't have to obey that call. You don't obey sin any longer. Now you obey righteousness. And you don't offer, as Paul says there, the, the, the members of your body to sin, to serve sin, but rather you offer the members of your body to righteousness, to serve righteousness. Paul says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And so Paul says in Romans 6, we should reckon ourselves dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. Sin has no power over you. You don't answer to sin. When sin comes calling, when sin knocks at the door, you don't have to answer. That's what Paul is saying. And this does away with any of you that would say, Jesus died to forgive me, but I can go on living as I please. Not many people will come right out and say that, but there are a lot of Christians, especially in the Bible Belt, a lot of people who say they're Christians, and that's what they do. They think Jesus died for them on the cross, so now they can live as they please. Jesus died for me on the cross and so now I can do what I want and God's pretty much stuck with me sins and all because that's just the way it is. Paul won't allow for that. Paul says that if you have been united to Christ in His death, yes, you get forgiveness, but you also get transformation. Yes, you've died to sin's penalty, but you've also died to sin's power. Jesus did not die for your sins so you could go on living in them. He died for your sins so you could die to your sins and be done with them and turn away from them. So there's death to self. There's death to sin. There's also death to the world. And here I can't even begin to give a full exposition of this in its context in Galatians 6. There's so much more here. But what Paul says is interesting. He says in Galatians 6, he says, I only boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So through Christ's crucifixion, Paul says, I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. Now there's a whole Jew-Gentile thing going on in the passage, but it's actually much bigger than that. What Paul's really saying here is the cross has transformed our relationship to the world around us. We've got an entirely different way of relating to our culture and to the world around us because of Christ's cross. 
We could put it this way to make a contemporary application. This means Christians are not people who simply go with the flow, who follow the fashions and trends of the world. We're not simply people who go with the current. There are times... Now, not everything in the world is bad, so it's not always wrong to, to, to do what people around you are doing. But so often it is. And so Christians are not people who simply go with the flow. Sometimes we stand against the tide. We plant ourselves against the current. We go against the fashions and the trends. Paul's saying here, we don't live in fleshly categories anymore. We don't look at the world or relate to the world that way. Indeed, I think you can pull out of this. Paul says we are called through the cross to be a countercultural community with an altogether different view of the good life than those around us. Think about how people define the good life in our society. You know, we've had the American dream that we've talked about for so long, which basically defines the good life in terms of money and power and popularity. All things which are perfectly good in their place. But when they come to dominate your life, when that's all your life is about, when you live in the world in that way, Paul says you can't do that. If you've been crucified with Christ, you've died to the world and the world has died to you. You've now got a different definition of the good life. It's not described now in terms of money or power or possessions for you. It's described in terms of becoming like Christ. And again, becoming like Christ means cruciformity. It means dying to sin. It means putting sin to death. Through the cross, we unplug from the systems that drive and shape and power the world. And we plug into the power of the Holy Spirit. So we live a new kind of life, putting those old ways to death and living in a righteous way. A way that, that, that displays the self-giving love and grace and wisdom of Jesus Himself this putting to death of the self and of the sin and, and sin and of the world, this is what the Puritans called mortification. I think that's actually a great word. Mortification. What they meant by mortification is just this. Using the power of the cross by the Holy Spirit to put sin to death in our lives. And it's the only way to be a disciple. Because to be a disciple, you have to take up your cross. That means you have to mortify. You have to mortify the self. You have to mortify sin. You have to mortify the world. You have to die to all of these things. John Owen, perhaps the greatest of the Puritan theologians, boiled it down very simply. He said, kill sin or sin will kill you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's good news here. You know, this sounds, you know, you think about Simon carrying the cross and what a burden that, that, that must have been. Yes, of course. And, and nobody should ever give the impression that the Christian life is easy. This is why you really can't market the gospel. <laughs> you can't market this message because it just doesn't it just doesn't work that way. It's not amenable to that at all. But there's good news in this. A gospel that forgives us but leaves us unchanged is really no gospel at all. It doesn't meet our deepest need which is to be redeemed holistically. It's to be restored to the image of God that we were made to bear. See, what this means, because of the cross, you're not ever stuck. Have you ever felt stuck in your life? Like you're just stuck in a rut that you can't get out of? A sin rut or some bad habit that you're in or, or a bad pattern of thought or an addiction that you can't seem to break out of? This 
message here tells you you're not stuck. There's always power to break out through the cross and the Spirit. This means we should resist all counterfeit Gospels. The world certainly beckons us with its counterfeit Gospel of self-fulfillment. The world tells you don't slay yourself. In fact, the world would say that sounds dangerous. That, you know, you're, you've got some kind of deep psychological problem if you talk about putting the self to death. You know, we talk, think about all the ways we use self. The way we use that word self. We talk about self-fulfillment. We talk about self-actualization. Uh, we talk about selfies. What does Jesus say? What's the only time he ever uses the word self? It's to talk about self-denial. Okay, the putting to death of the self. The world tells us, the gospel of the world is live for yourself. That's the only way to be happy. Think about our culture's mantras. You know, look out for number one. Do what you want. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Find yourself. Nobody can tell me what to do. That is the message of the mainstream culture and we are constantly berated by it. Sometimes God is even dragged in to provide some kind of justification for this. I think it's God with a small g. But, but, but God is even used to underwrite this kind of self-centered lifestyle because we just think, oh, God must, you know, if He exists at all, He exists to make us happy and to meet our needs. And so surely God will sanction and bless whatever we think is going to make us feel good. And so we use God to provide kind of uh, religious underpinnings or religious underwriting for what we were going to do anyway. The cross slays all of that. The cross kills it. The cross has sin-crushing power. The cross kills the self. The cross kills living for self. It kills self-centeredness and self-absorption. The cross kills the self. The cross slays sin as it slays the self. The cross, again, was not just an event. It is an ethic. It's, it's a way of life Christ calls us to. When Jesus died on the cross, water and blood flowed from His side. Blood for cleansing and forgiveness and water. Pointing us to the water of life, the Holy Spirit, who comes to bring us new life through His death. This is our hope. That God does not leave us mired and stuck in our sins with these cheap, superficial, false gospels that the world is constantly preaching to us. Now this means, as it's so clear in the Gospels, the cost of discipleship is high. In the famous words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. The cost of discipleship is high. But the cost of refusing discipleship is even higher. As Jesus said, the only way to save your life is to lose it, and you lose it through the cross. And Jesus says, he who seeks to save his life, that is, he seeks to save his life by avoiding the cross, he'll lose his life in the end. It's really that simple. You know how they say baseball? You know, baseball back in swing. You know how they say baseball is such, a, such an easy game. There's one thing that a baseball coach is always telling his players. Keep your eye on the ball. And that's baseball in a nutshell. Keep your eye on the ball. Well, the Christian life is easy too. The Christian pastor is always saying to his people, keep your eyes on the cross. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
That's the Christian life. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, on the cross. The cross is completely unlike any other religion or philosophy or ethical system. In the so-called marketplace of ideas, it is one of a kind. The cross is utterly unique in the way it secures our salvation and shapes our pattern of life. The cross is our all in all. That's why the Apostle Paul could say he wanted to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. It's why he says the cross is the power and wisdom of God. The cross is the love and justice of God revealed. It is the purpose and plan of God revealed. The cross is our salvation and it is our way of life. It is forgiveness, but it is more than forgiveness. The cross releases us from all obligation because at the cross, Christ paid it all. And the cross is the sum of all obligation because it's the way of Christ's likeness. It's the way of life for a disciple. The cross is the law of Christ. You are a Barabbas because Christ went to the cross in your place. He bore your death sentence. But you are also a Simon called to carry your cross by putting sin to death and deny yourself. Let's pray together and give God thanks. Father, we thank You for this glorious Gospel which brings us a complete salvation not only from what we deserve because of our sin, but also saves us and rescues us and delivers us from the power of sin over us so we're not slaves to sin anymore. The chains have been broken and we can go free and serve You faithfully as we were made to be. We know this is like a fish being thrown back in the water. This is the air we're to breathe as creatures made in Your image. The air of righteousness is the air of life. And so fill our lungs with this with this air. Father, we pray that Your ultimate aim and grand design in the cross of Christ to destroy sin and to create a righteous people zealous for good deeds would be fully realized in our life together. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.